Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today I'm going to tell you about a conversation that I had with Dr. Camilla Townsend and how she thinks that when you're teaching about indigenous women's history, it's a good time to throw out the themes and get into biographies. Hello and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Episode 31, Thematic Narratives and Indigenous Women. Okay. <laughs> hey, Brooke, I miss you. I know. Hi, Kelsey. <laughs> How's life on the other side of the computer screen? Life on the other side of the computer screen is okay, but it's not the same without you in the room, so I can squeeze your cheekies. <laughs> I know, seriously, I miss, like, real people. We've been in quarantine now for almost three weeks. It's been, it's been rough. I, I've never, I never thought I would say how excited I am to go to a grocery store. <laughs> like... You know you're turning 35 when. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those adulting things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, um, tell me you're getting old without telling me you're getting old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm excited about going to a grocery store. <laughs> oh. uh, well, Brooke, I'm excited to tell you about our guest this week. Her name okay. is Dr. Camilla Townsend. and. Name. Yeah, she's incredible. Uh, she is a professor of history, and I asked her to tell us because her expertise is actually in indigenous peoples, and this is an area where, as a history teacher, I can name a lot of indigenous women, but I can't, like, tell you their story as, like, whereas in... You know, when you're looking at like kind of a white centric European history, you can kind of tell the story of like women broadly. And yeah. I feel very and, and obviously there's no like women's narrative, but you can tell diverse narratives within that. And with indigenous women, it's hard because every tribe is so different, you know. Yeah. And so it was really nice to have this wonderful conversation with an expert and learn a little bit more about how to teach indigenous women's history as an important component to indigenous history broadly. And um, so she's in just a wonderful resource. So I'm going to let her introduce herself. Great. Awesome. I'm Camilla Townsend. Uh, once long, long ago, I was a seventh grade teacher, uh, but now I teach history at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, uh, which is in central Jersey, about an hour from New York City. Uh, my specialty is Native American history, and I have worked quite a bit with Native American women's history. Uh, so hopefully we'll have a good conversation about that today. That was great. I mean, she's really impressive, but it's so interesting that she was a seventh grade teacher. I know, right? Um, like, how do you go from teaching seventh graders? Like, I'm just thinking of like braces and pimples and ridiculously crazy questions to then like being very academic. <laughs> yeah, like a college professor and like this really great academia. Um it's just impressive and, and a cool journey. Yeah. Too. Well, here's what she said to that. Well, I wasn't a seventh grade teacher for very long. It was only, it was under two years, 
And then I decided that I really did want to go back to school. I wasn't sure. I knew I wanted to study history, but I wasn't sure whose history. And in fact, I think I was at that time most interested in white women's history, in European and, and European settlers in the Americas. Um, but then uh, because I had spent a year in Nicaragua under the Sandinistas when they had a during a period when they had launched a revolution, had won a bottom-up revolution and had started, you know, educating the, the people in, in night schools and stuff. I had experienced all that. So I was very excited to learn more about Latin America. Once you start learning about Latin America, you learn more about native peoples because indigenous peoples are such a large segment of the population down there. So one thing kind of led to another. Um, and then I was actually already a professor when I started studying indigenous languages and realized that in the case of some tribal groups, uh, we actually have writings that, that Native peoples did themselves in their own languages. That's rare, but it does exist. Um, so again, I didn't, I didn't know that uh, when I started out. It just one phase of my life led to another. I think that happens to a lot of us. It sounds like in your own journey, you didn't realize there was a lot to know about Native American women. That is very true. You put it really well. That is, I think, like a lot of people, I thought there wasn't much to know about Native American history. Uh, they're, you know, the stereotype is they're spiritual, they're kind people, uh, they wore deer hides, you know, the, the, the usual, right? That's kind of what I knew when I was very young. Um, and then as I began to study the history, I realized, no, we know a great deal, partly from reading against the grain and between the lines in European sources, uh, but in some cases also because uh, we have, there do survive sources that they wrote in their own language. And once I realized that, I was off and running. And so from then on, that's what I studied. Uh, from, from then on, those were the books that I wanted to write. Um, but yeah. So you're absolutely right. I, my eyes got wider and wider as the years went by, and I realized how much there actually is to know. Why do you think that myth sort of prevails, that there isn't much to know there, and, and therefore the history of these women kind of get excluded? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's not true in Latin America. It's much more true up here in the United States. I think it is probably, I mean, we're not conscious of this. It wasn't on purpose, but I think it has been kind of a handy myth, a convenient thing to believe that they were simple people with a simple language and a simple culture, because it does make it that much more dismissible. I think as social studies teachers or as history teachers, it's particularly hard to incorporate Native history because of all groups in America, at least in the United States, they, feet, they fit the trajectory least well. That is, almost any other group we can put into the story of America as a story of gradual, of struggle and gradual triumph. Uh, even African American history, as painful as it is, uh, they rose above the chains. The chains were broken, and they they triumphed. You know, um, it's you can't. It's much more difficult to tell the story of Native American history that way. It's uh, overwhelmingly painful to think about how much they lost, how much their people are still suffering in many parts of the country. So I think it has become kind of convenient for us to believe on some unconscious level without thinking about it too much that there wasn't much of a culture there in the first place that there wasn't that there isn't much to know uh, we can be sympathetic I think most of us are um, our students are mostly sympathetic but we don't have to worry that we don't know much about them if we have an unconscious assumption that there isn't that much to know um, so 
I could be wrong, but I think that's the case because down in Latin America, where they're surrounded by the pyramids and the, you know, the great works of these civilizations like the Mayas and the Aztecs, they don't have this idea that there's nothing much to know there. Um, they realize that they should study native languages that still survive in the country, et cetera. So I, I think it has to do with our colonizing myth. And when people do study Native American history, it does tend to be the history of warriors. You can think of Sitting Bull, you can think of Red Cloud. In New England, you can think of Squanto or King Philip uh, back in the colonial days. In fact, when I, as someone who studies Native women's history, have had interviews with filmmakers and, uh, and other people uh, who want to bring Native history to the attention of the public, they almost always want to know about the greatest warriors or the greatest warrior traditions. I think the intention is good. They're trying to bring honor to Native peoples. And so they're interested in hearing about these great warriors who fought and died and sort of sacrificed themselves for their people, symbolically speaking. But what gets lost in that then is Native women's history, because in most cultures, not in all, there's great variation, of course, but in most Native cultures, in the Americas, women's job was to keep the next generation alive. Young warriors were supposed to be willing to fight to the death, and even if necessary to be sacrificed by the enemy if they lost. Old men were supposed to be wise to know when to choose a fight and when to avoid a fight. Women were not only supposed to bear the children and raise the children, but think about how to keep the next generation alive. So for instance, um, if war came, they were to be willing, if necessary, to go with the enemy as, as concubine wives, as prisoner wives. The important thing was to survive. They're, they were given the mandate, the job in prayers and in uh, sort of remembered speeches that were passed from one generation to another um, to, to teach the next generation the language, the stories. That was uh, part of women's work. So we lose all of that when in telling Native history, we focus only on uh, great warriors, you know, leaping on horses to their deaths from high cliffs, sort of. That's a great story, too. Um, but it's not all of Native culture, and it's not all of their history. And the women were very much aware of its being their job to keep the next generation alive and to keep the culture viable, if at all possible. So we shouldn't lose track of that. They didn't lose track of it, so we shouldn't lose track of it. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this fall, I've been doing a lot more research into Native women, and I stumbled upon Witamu from uh, King Philip's War. That's right. And there's another pretty face. Is that her yes. name? Pretty nose. Pretty nose from the Battle of Little Bighorn. That's right. Uh, and and they're, like the women were warriors as well. Women could be warriors. That is true. Um, it's interesting in in the Aztec tradition, and we have written records there. They actually describe very specifically that in certain cultures, in certain city states. Um, when they were attacked, if their men were losing, at that point, the women were expected to step forward and fight. And in other cultures, it did happen, not universally so. Uh, so for example, there is Pretty Shield, uh, but she she wasn't a warrior. Um, Widamu did fight, but what she was more than anything was a political leader. She joined in battles when she had to, but 
her job really was to, to lead her people because she came from a tribe that was matrilineal. The power passed through the female line and she inherited power. So the women would fight in many tribes, not in all, but it wasn't usually their primary duty. Usually the primary duty of fighting fell to men and women's job was to survive and to help their people survive. But it is interesting that, you know, we think of the warrior with the bow and arrow. We don't picture uh, women fighting also, and they sometimes did. They fight right. For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, go to our website, www.remedialherstory.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Through Patreon, you can sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to behind-the-scenes information, gear, and bonus episodes. Patreon allows you, the listener, to ensure that the shows you love continue. This episode is sponsored by our patrons, Kent and Jamie Heckel from Ohio, Leah Tanger from Connecticut, Sarah Reardon from New Hampshire, Barbara Tischler from New York, Mark Breyer from wherever his van has wandered, Jeffrey Ecker and Brooke Neva Sullivan from right here next to me. Thank you so much for your contributions to this podcast. You make it possible. So we're back and we left off with Camilla Townsend about to tell us the history of these indigenous women. So this is what she said. So when you teach Native American women's history to your students, where do you start and and what do you tell them? Well, I start with all the stereotypes and the the wrong ideas that we have. Um, Sometimes I read with them an Adrian Rich poem that I think is very beautiful about white women's history and its importance and our need to know it even at the same time as this, I think these are her words, as we know that it is not enough. It is not enough to know only about, uh, you know, white women's figurative great-great-grandmothers. Um, and then in her poem, she opens it up to, to the histories and stories of, of other women. So I begin with ideas, our own assumptions, etc. I have the students read a chapter from the Laura Ingalls Wilder series. I don't know if you remember, but when Laura was a little girl, at one point they're out in the Kansas territory. They eventually have to give up and move back because they've, they've crossed the line and they're living in Indian territory. And she remembers seeing all the Osage Indians file past the cabin her father had built as they moved further west. And she had a sort of desperate longing to go with them. It can be interpreted as, as a racist moment, I suppose, in the sense that she says, oh, mama, get, you know, give me one of those papooses. But it can also be interpreted as a very poignant moment in which a little white girl realizes how much she doesn't know about these other people and, and comes face to face with the sort of vague idea that, that they're replacing, that she and her people are replacing these other people, sort of pressuring them to move on. It's very sad. So it, I find that that's an opening, a connection that students can make. Here's a book they've read, and it opens up another world as the character in the book has 
before her opened up the world of other people's history. And when, once we've done that, then I begin at the beginning, I try to look at um, Native women before there were any Europeans here in the New World and talk about aspects of their lives, it being their job to survive, I, I talk about the, some of the women who fought. Uh, there's a, a, an Aztec woman uh, uh, name, whose name basically means a shield flower, okay? She's a bearer of, of flowers on a shield and we actually know something about her life because the Aztecs wrote about it. Um, so we can begin with some individuals but also talk about patterns. And then when the conquest comes, I think it's very important to talk about the reasons for the conquest, the huge technological differences and then all the native people suffered, they, they died probably to the tune of 90% in the first 100 years. And of course, it was women who suffered that as much as men. I don't mean only that they also died, but they were the ones whose job it was to keep the next generation alive and their children were dying. Um, and we have some writing, some stories that have survived about the experience of that of the great die-off. Today's children will connect with this because of COVID. On the other hand, they may not because of course, there was no way to mitigate then. There was no way to wear masks and face shields or close the district when the numbers got too high. Everybody got the disease and uh, between two or 20% would die at a clip. So we talk about that and then how the women tried to survive. And here again, you get another instance of Native women's history being erased. And that is because it was their job to survive, many Native women did interact with white people more than their husbands and brothers did some actually started relationships and marriages. Others worked for white people, laundering their clothes, cooking for them, et cetera. Um, and if we don't understand, we can look at that and say, oh, they were selling out. They were going over to the other side. But no, they were enacting an old tradition of being intermediaries. It was long part of their role in terms of keeping their people alive to agree to be an intermediary, marry with the enemy if necessary. That happened all the time, especially to chief's daughters and sisters. So they saw nothing wrong uh, with crossing the line and getting to know the enemy if it would help keep the next generation alive. There's almost a funny story when they were excavating in Jamestown they didn't just find, uh, you know, English armor and English signet rings. I mean, they found those things, but they also found evidence of Native peoples. In fact, almost all the foodstuffs that they found were Native foods, and not just Native foods, but foods cooked in the Native ways, in Native pots. Uh, to such an extent, there were so many shards of pots showing that Native-style cooking within that it became clear that Native women were living in the fort, in Jamestown Fort, you couldn't have had that many, you know, sort of native dishes and native pots if it were just that they were selling them things. And of course, the Virginians who were in charge of this didn't necessarily want this to get out. It was somehow embarrassing because this was, you know, decades ago. Um, now we can look at it for what it is and not be embarrassed. This was part of colonization. And for the native women, it was part of surviving. Mm -hmm. um, they, their husbands and brothers would have been fine with them doing this if it meant that they could survive. Hmm. So it, it's uh, very much a part of the women's history is very much a part of the story of the conquest and Native people's ability to not only survive the conquest, but move past it uh, to make sure that some part of their community would still be alive. 
and would live into the present day as they have and did, you know, that Native peoples are very much still with us. And uh, the women played a part in that. It is their history too. That's, I did not know that history about, I mean, I knew about Pocahontas and other marriage exchanges that took place there, um, but I didn't realize how integrated it became because I thought somewhere I read that Pocahontas was kind of the last sort of supported and approved interracial marriage and maybe that's a mistake. Right she was not the last but I understand where you where you're coming from that is it's very much true that in Virginia and in the south in general and actually even in New England for a little while it became illegal uh, for white people to marry people of color. So that did happen. Uh, you're not crazy to think that you've read that, you have. Uh, so for many, many years, Native people and Black people intermarried, went to school together, et cetera, it, because they, there, was, there was no choice. That is, uh, they were literally not allowed to be part of the white community. But that didn't happen right away. Uh, there were actually a couple hundred years, that is throughout the 1600s and then a good part of the 1700s, uh, Native people on the whole East Coast were very much part of colonial communities. Often their own villages or towns were next to the, the, the white village or town, but many of the people, especially the women, also lived in the white towns and villages as servants um, and sometimes even uh, in relationships. So that is, again, a rather unknown part of the history. Pocahontas was not the last. Um, she is the most famous, that's for sure. And I do find that she's a useful figure. I know we don't want to turn only to biography, but Pocahontas is the one Native woman other than Sacagawea whose name our students know. And that helps. They've all seen the Disney movie. They're all surprised to learn that she's real and interested to find out that she was real. So I do think that her story is useful. Um, in that it helps us to talk about women's job as the survivors uh, and women's job as intermediaries. And she's a great example of someone who carried that out beautifully. I just finished reading um, the Indigenous People's History of the United States. She talks about um, how there was sort of this period where they started trying to show that the United States is this big melting pot and they wanted to show how Native Americans have always been a part of the pro the progress of, mm -hmm. you know, across and like you were talking about with Jamestown. So when you were talking about with Jamestown, I, I, it kind of that, I was hearing the echoes of her book kind of in, in my head and I'm, and she goes on to say that looking at it that way kind of doesn't do doesn't show that there's also this i mean you've used the word conquest going on at the same time and how do you how do you begin to to mitigate that with your students right you know that is a good question it's very hard and in fact i think that's the one way in which the disney movie fails us they certainly give all due respect to Native cultures. They're quite accurate. They show a, a woman's important role, but in the end, they erase the suffering. She stands proudly, does not want to go to England because she loves her own people's culture. And of course, that's not true. She did go to England, right? She had to, right, okay. Um, and, and, then, and they don't show people dying of smallpox. They don't show that her father, before he dies, will have seen his people have to retrench and move deeper into the woods. And by the two generations later, they've lost all of their land. They, they show none of that. They erase all of that. 
um, and as, as you put it well, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's book talks about this, there is this tension. On one hand, we want to give Native peoples agency. We want to notice that they were there. And certainly in the colonial period, they were very much there. I mean, the big problem on the East Coast, actually, sort of how to resolve issues between England and France uh, became sort of a high stakes issue, very violent wars, because uh, Indians got involved in different angles. So they, they did have a lot of power. They were there. And yet, gradually, and then later, rapidly, conquest occurred. They suffered. And if we're so busy talking about the, how they had agency and uh, giving them all due power and all their dignity, we may talk ourselves right off the subject of how much they suffered and, and, and are still suffering again in many cases. So how to do that? What I try to do in my classes is make sure to spend plenty of time on the period before the conquest and then the long colonial period so that the students see Native people, including Native women, being very proactive in a world without white people and then for a couple hundred years uh, being a crucial element in colonial history. But then by around the middle of the class, and of course, you know, in high school, you don't have the luxury of quite this much time. You've got so much to cover. Um, but for me, about halfway through the semester, I guess for you, it'd be halfway through a unit. I do turn and say, but that's not the end of the story. Mm. Uh, that, that then begins for each tribe at a certain moment in time begins a great die off. For Pocahontas's people, it was back in the 1600s. Um, for, for many of the New England and uh, Iroquoian peoples, it was more the end of the 1700s. For the Great Plains people, the end of the 1800s. So wherever you look, when you look closely, there comes a moment um, when people were pushed so far with their backs to the wall that, that they had no place to go and they starved or they died of diseases or they were rounded up and put in reservations that were more like, at first, more like concentration camps. So I think it is important to do both. And the only way I've been able to approach it is to, is to take it, to use time, to use history, to use the chronological framework, to, to make sure in the beginning to, to give them agency and then move more towards the period of loss. In the best of all possible worlds, you'd, be, you'd end in the present day too, because now many people would say that there's sort of a native renaissance going on in, in the arts and politically, um, more and more native peoples are feeling like maybe they're finding their groove. Uh, so I, not every high school class allows you to do that, but if it does, it's a way to give them back some power and dignity by the end. Um, but if you're just covering the 1800s, you just can't end there. You have to end in the midst of disaster. And you have to acknowledge it, I think. Otherwise, we're lying to the kids. At least that's how I see it. And I think Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz and other Native and part Native heritage historians would agree. You don't want to whitewash out that, you know, that pain uh, too thoroughly. Mm. When you were talking before about the Iroquois and the Sioux, and um, I have found, and this could be poor teaching on my part, that I don't talk about this, like I start with the Wampanoag and then I move on to, you know, as we, as, as the white people move west, the history of these different people starts. And, um, and so I, I'm just curious, like, what, what, there has to be, known things about 
indigenous people and women of the Sioux before white people get before white people came. You raise a great point and it's very difficult. I actually do follow the white people because that is to follow the creation of the sources. But I talk about it with the students ahead of time and I talk about it again at the end. I do constantly remind them, you know, we are now covering the Sioux. It's the 1800s and we're covering the Sioux because those are the Indians that the US Army was then dealing with. It doesn't mean that the Sioux didn't have a history before or that they haven't had it since, right? Uh, but I do find it does help to organize the class. Again, it, it does follow then the production of the sources that we have. It follows a history that the students already know. So they have kind of room in their mind to let uh, um, Pretty Shield in, for instance, because they already know something about the, the, the expansion through the West. Uh, so now they can add this. I find when I tried, I did this only once, uh, to teach it very differently um, and trying to go through the West through time, from peak conquest to now, and then New England through time from early days to now, everybody's eyes glazed over. It was too much. Uh, mm -hmm. We weren't really following the production of sources. We were relying a lot on archaeology at first, which is hard to teach, to, even to college students, much less under to high school students. Um, and I was asking them to deal with a narrative that was completely different from the narrative of US history that they're used to. So it didn't really work very well. I will say there's a great book uh, by Elizabeth Fenn about the, the West. I suddenly can't say the title of that book, but it's about the West um, uh, up to and including Lewis and Clark, but you know, rather than sort of starting with Lewis and Clark. And she does deal a lot with, um, with archeology. span There's also a wonderful book called Water Lily by a Lakota Sioux. And the first couple of chapters are all about life before white people ever show up. So sometimes I've assigned those couple of chapters. Um, but most of the book does in fact, uh, or a good, I shouldn't say that, a good section of the book does in fact deal with the arrival of white people. And it was written after the arrival of white people by a woman, a, a Sioux woman who had learned to write. So, um, so it's, there's no easy answer to your wonderful question about, you know, how to be sort of true to Native history as they lived it and not just have them be people who surround white people's westward migrations. Um, but if you at least talk about the issue with the kids for a while, I think that helps a little bit. Okay, so you've taught them about these people in, in Jamestown and um, mentioned Pocahontas and things like that. Where do you where do you go next with? Right. So I do do both the South, so Jamestown and then New England, um, talking about King Philip's War and including uh, Weedamu. Uh, then um, the American Revolution. The, oh, there is a wonderful source. Mary Jemison was a German settler girl, the age of a seventh grader who was taken by Native Americans during one of the constant 18th century wars, but then was so happy with the Iroquois that you know, she was adopted and married, was so happy that she chose to stay even when as an older woman my age, she had the ability to go back. But she still, she had been almost 15 when she was taken, so she still remembered English. And she later uh, dictated uh, uh, some memoirs to a white man who wrote them down. So. I can cover the revolution and how much the Native Americans suffered during that period when they, you know, without the French, once the French had been removed, once they had lost the French and Indian War and left, the Native Americans were much more vulnerable to the English because they could no longer buy arms from the French. So you can watch 
how the Native Americans suffer and how they begin to lose these wars. And you can focus on a woman if you want to. I mean, genetically, she's white, but culturally, she's Iroquois, and her name was Mary Jemison. Then um, following the, the white people's push west, so, you know, with, given the problem we raised before, I do follow the white people west. Um, there aren't good texts about Native women or by Native women um, in that period, but the, a man named Blackhawk, a Sauk Indian, he later dictated an autobiography after he was captured and put in um, virtually a prison, although it was a, a, a reservation. And he did talk a great deal about the Native women uh, that he had led as chief and talked very much about how much they actually wanted him to fight. Again, that had been part of their of, of their role. They their job was to keep the young people alive, but their job also was to have the, the the warriors fight. So you can indirectly get a glimpse of what women had been thinking in that moment of of, of terror and loss through him. And then um, moving onward, uh, the Sioux out in the the greater Western territories, the Sioux do provide us with probably the best sources. Um, many of them were interviewed later. Many of them wrote themselves later. Again, as I mentioned, the daughter of one, Ella Cara Deloria, wrote the book Water Lily. So there's quite a bit you can do. Plus, the Sioux are, have attained sort of mythic status in the American imagination. So the students have heard of them. These were hunter societies, uh, the Great Plains people. And so women's farming activities and women's importance as peacekeepers had declined a bit. Uh, and that allows you to talk about women's role separate from the arrival of Europeans or, or almost unrelated to Europeans. They had their own sexism too um, and their own struggles too, separate from white people. And the Sioux, studying the Sioux really allows, allows you to, to get into that because these are great warrior people galloping across the plains. And it's not a society that had made as much room for women, women's voices, women's farming as the East Coast. What bits of sexism can you see there in, in those interactions? Well, sort of one memorable story that comes from Water Lily. Um, I think this was really about her, her actual grandmother, or maybe great-grandmother. You'll have to check me. This woman was a, had been a prisoner of war. Um, again, they, the, the Native Americans almost never sacrificed or killed women. They, sac they almost always sacrificed a, a warrior from a, a young man from the enemy side when they were victorious. But the women and children were kept alive and, in fact, were adopted into the society. That was a big part of the reason for wars, actually. They needed more uteruses because that's how you get more people. Uh, men can be shared, <laughs> but you have to have uteruses to create the next generation. So sometimes wars were actually intended to uh, kidnap uh, women and children. Those women and children didn't then live with the people who had attacked their village. That would have been too painful they were traded to other uh, villagers, other tribes who were perceived by them then as sort of a safe haven so that they could relax and allow themselves, especially if they were young, as most were, uh, to really feel welcome in, the, in this new society they'd been adopted into. Well, this writer, Water Lily, the author of Water Lily, I think great-grandmother, was a prisoner wife. And one thing you lose when you're a prisoner wife, you're treated well. 
but you lose your, your kin network, you lose your extended family, they're not there anymore. So she was lonely and unhappy and they were on the move when she had to have a baby. Her baby was coming, but they were you know, moving across the plains quickly and the group couldn't stop. So she had to stop by herself, pull, pull her pony off to the edge, have the baby, and then catch up later that day. Uh, you know, under normal circumstances, several, she would have had uh, women relatives all around her who would have stopped with her and helped her and helped her. So it, it's an example of how hard it was to be a prisoner wife, even if you were well treated. And, you know, the children of prisoner wives were fully equal in society. They often became chiefs. There was no class of people who were second class, nothing like that. We wasn't, mustn't imagine that it was slavery, but it was still painful. Um, and this, I think this story allows you to talk about the pain that such women suffered without denigrating them, um, without showing them as pathetic victims, because this woman did it. She had that baby, got back up on the pony and caught up. Okay, right. Um, so you can give her her dignity and talk about how tough it was. And of course, such things pale in comparison to what they went through later after the, the, the white settlers came and they were rounded up and put into, into reservations. So you can, you see some sexism among the Native Americans, too, but it's nothing like what they went through when they actually experienced what I think we have to call conquest. That's a crazy story. Like, not yeah. a person stopped. I, I they, they, they weren't, she had no relative. She had no kin. She was a recent, her husband was kind to her, but, it, you know, it wasn't a warrior's job to stop and help with the babies, right? I guess I would say that Native American history, perhaps like African American history and the history of other people who didn't very often hold the pen, might be a place where it's best done through biography. I, normally, we don't want to do that. I know. I agree with you about that. It, we shouldn't, it shouldn't just be a list of great women. You're trying to think about women's roles in a, in a bigger way, in a, in a, in a, the, in how they pervade the whole culture or, and histories that we're looking at. And I agree with that approach. The problem is we know so little about any individual Native peoples or, say, African-American peoples or, um, that if we, and, and our students know so little, like, as I said, they know the name Pocahontas and Sacagawea, that's about it, that if we avoid biographical studies or treatments with the kids, I fear that we haven't gone far enough then in trying to kind of reduce the anonymity that these people find themselves in, right? Um, and so I think it might be a place to make an exception and talk about Pocahontas or Weedamu or Water Lily's great-grandmother or Pretty Shield, etc. Yeah. Um, but each teacher has to make his or her own decision about that. But I, you shouldn't feel bad about doing that. Let's just put it that way, that if this is a place where you end up reverting to a, a few figures and talking about them in depth, I think that's okay. Um, it's good if the students walk out of there knowing a few more Native American stories and Native American names, I think, because um, they already know a lot of white people's names from history, right? So we don't need to do that for them as much. That, that would be my take anyway. But, well, the yeah. stories you told were so illustrative. So I think that's fascinating. Yeah, they're interesting too. And it helps bring it, it helps bring it alive somehow, right? You mentioned Sacagawea. And I just have to ask, since you're here and I have this moment with you. Yeah. Um, so she travels west with Lewis and Clark. She is their translator. I learned this year that her husband is with her, which I always knew she was pregnant on the journey. 
Right. Did not know her husband was there. So that yeah. was like, oh, <laughs> and what a weird man what to be erased in history. <laughs> history. Yeah, that's right. She's there and he's not. Right. That's a good point. You know, she's like the perfect example of everything we've alluded to. She was um, Shoshone by birth. Um, and then in wars with the Hidatsa, she was taken prisoner. So before any white men or women ever made the appearance, she had suffered and lived as a young prisoner wife. She had then been um, sold or given to a Frenchman. And so she was Charbonneau's wife, but he had multiple women. He had bought himself several wives from different tribes. So she was one wife among many. Um, well, I shouldn't say many. I think there were three and, and two but when Lewis and Clark met them. So there she was having a rough time of it, very young. You know, she's lost her people. Then she doesn't even become fully enfolded into that society, but instead is transferred to the Europeans. Uh, we know that Charbonneau was not good to her because in, in the journals kept by Lewis and Clark, there's records of them stopping him from beating her up. So he was a batterer. So she's suffering but she stays alive. It's her job to survive psychologically, and she does. So much so that when Lewis and Clark come along and they're staying with the Mandan as they start their great voyage, and they learn that one of the Frenchmen's wives is actually Shoshone, and they know they've got to go through Shoshone territory, and they ask, could you guys come with us so she can translate? She squares her shoulders and says, yes, of course, okay, instead of, you know, shrinking away in misery, and thereby gets herself a little bit of power, not a lot, but some. She's now become an ally of Lewis and Clark, leading white men, okay? and they do shield her from violence. They don't let Charbonneau bring his other wife, because they don't want a man with two wives along, so she, again, she wins a bit there. She does translate and she does get back to her people and she speaks to her family again. Um, again, talk, you know, the epitome of the survivor. She chooses to go on with her now adopted family because she's got a husband, she's got the baby by then. And when they get close to the Pacific, Lewis and Clark decide they're going to leave some of the people, including her, in an encampment while they and a couple other guys go on and see the Pacific. And she says to them, oh, no, I didn't come this far to not see the Pacific Ocean. You're taking me, too. I want to see the ocean. And they did. Okay. Um, so she's a, a great example of, of sort of all that we've talked about, you know, sort of the, the, the rough patches, the difficult periods that Native peoples, including the women, did suffer, the way the suffering uh, certainly uh, increased when they were dealing with the colonizers, first the French and then the American settlers, but the young women's acceptance of their role to survive, she was strong, she did it, she carried that baby and she got what she wanted too, to see the ocean. Okay. Um, and her son went on and became educated and actually left some writings. So and isn't he adopted by either Lewis or Clark? That is exactly right. That is exactly right. Okay. Um, by Clark later, because she, the, the sad part, her story is it's, it's a classic example. She then dies quite young of uh, a Western disease. For a while, some of us thought that she had survived. I believed it too, because there were some people on a reservation many years later who said that she the Shoshone reservation that she was living there with them. But I've looked into the records and I don't think it's true. Mm. She died quite young. But then, as you say, uh, uh, Clark adopted her son. Pompey was his name. There is a record of her having died at a certain uh, fort in the Dakotas. 
And again, these stories of these other people on the reservation in the late 1800s just don't hold up. Um, so she's a, she's a classic example of all that we've talked about, about na what Native women's roles were, how they succeeded in some ways, and yet at the same time, how sad it was she dies young. And yet she did what she set out to do, which is keep her child alive and let him have you know, be the next generation, which he was. Mm. Um, so I, there's a great example of a sort of mini biography that you can use to teach the important themes from Native women's history. And what happened? And everyone's heard of her. Right, right. right. <laughs> She's one of the few women that are actually in the state standards, like named right. in the state standards. Right, right. Um, right. What happened to her husband, the mean French man? Right, again, we don't know, but we think that he also died in that same fort in the Dakotas in a terrible epidemic. You know, again, a classic example of the way the history plays out. Okay. Um, but we're not sure, but that's what it looks like. Wow, that's so cool that you got to like dig through all of the research. Right, well, I actually, mystery. it's a little less cool, Kelsey, because I actually was down in print somewhere else saying, Oh, we shouldn't, you know, it's just because we as a culture wanted her to die while she was still young and beautiful and sexy. These Indians said she was still alive, so she was probably still alive. I put that in print and then later, only later, went to look at the actual records and it, it I, her own son says she was dead. She was dead. Okay. Um, so that was sort of my feminist fantasy that she survived to <laughs> old age with her fist in the air, right? Uh, sadly, <laughs> she may be a survivor, but her story was sadder than that. This is another, this is also an example of what you raised before. Do we talk about the destruction that they experienced or, or, or the dignity that they showed and the survival that they manifested? And it, I mean, she's, her story is an example of both. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I feel so honored and privileged. Oh, thank you. You don't need to say that. Afternoon with you. <laughs> Not at all. So talking to her was just an absolute highlight and she is such a wealth of knowledge. I feel corrected in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> Always kind of nice to be, you know, put correct. Um, and then you can come correct to your students, which is good. Yeah. But yeah, she's incredible. Yeah. It's hard when you're like, you feel like you are still learning while you're also guiding students. And it's... I hope that happens your entire career. <laughs> I, hope you, I hope you never stop having those aha moments. And I would hope that for any educator, because then like, I think educators are perpetual learners at heart. And if they've lost their curiosity or their ability to innovate or think that they've learned it all, get out. Yeah. <laughs> like you're doing it wrong. <laughs> like, so I hope that always happens. But, I mean, I don't want it to be so aha that you're like, well, I've done it wrong for 30 years. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the beautiful thing about inquiry instruction is you're modeling right. the research process for students. And, they, you know, new sources come forward all the time that change the history. And so those that advocate that, like, history is done and it's, yeah. like, whatever, it's just they just don't know. Oh, my gosh. Let's make a list of those people. Yeah. <laughs> tar and feather tour. Um, that's awesome. So I came up with an interest. You know, she talks a lot about how biography and these, you know, she basically started telling me indigenous women's history by telling me about individual women. And so that got me thinking, OK, this isn't the time for thematic instruction. This is the time. I mean, her words were this is the place for biography. And so um, what I started thinking about is how do you teach indigenous women's history without 
having a a narrative right so yeah instead like how many first person accounts do we have right right exactly so take those first person accounts and build an inquiry from there so um i saw a ted talk a while ago that um it's about african history and they the woman was talking about how they're the date she says it's called the danger of a single story and um basically it's this like warning about stereotypes related to africa and it made me think um right because like africa's a country right you know <laughs> like all yeah. those things and and she was just like yeah like i grew up with you know i'm upper middle class and people assumed that like I grew up in poverty and you know whatever and most of her the you know the stories that she loved always had like white protagonists and played with snow and like all these things that she (laughs) didn't have and um so anyway it's a very interesting TED talk if you get a chance to look at it. There's also a a great movie um on the Disney channel. (laughs) Oh really? (laughs) I have to go find it, but I can vividly remember watching it where this this African-American family is so excited to get a South African student in their home, and the student that shows up is white, <laughs> and and they're like, bullshit. They're like, wait a minute. <laughs> we, we wanted a South African, and like all their assumptions are blown to pieces. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's a pretty good. I love that. Very revolutionary for the Disney Channel those on those Friday night movies. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, and so I, that's sort of what I was thinking is, uh, like, take a Pocahontas. Pocahontas's story is not the story of all indigenous oh God, women. No. <laughs> so take her story and put a a story uh, the the story of Sacagawea next to the story of Witamu next to the story of right and just like add these women's yeah. things and have your students consider the question is there a single native american women's story and maybe they will find similarities in those stories but um, more than likely they will conclude what camilla townsend has concluded which is that there isn't a single native american women's stories and that these women's stories are so unique and different from one another that you know it's dangerous to to have that single narrative um so I don't know. Awesome. I think that would, could be a really cool way to investigate this women's yeah. history. I love it. This is awesome. Brooke, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thanks, Kelsey. This was fun. I'm Brooke Sullivan. <laughs> I'm Kelsey Eckert. <laughs> See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.